0: I'm Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio possesses one of the sharpest voices in American letters today. He's both an editor at the New York Magazine and author of several collections, including Superbad and, most recently, Celebrity Chekhov, in which he replaces characters from the short stories of Anton Chekhov with popular celebrities. His name is Ben Greenman, and in addition to his literary efforts, he can also be found tweeting about sports with some frequency. In what follows, and and decidedly not in this order, Mr. Greenman and I discuss his fans' biography, that is what brought him to sports originally. We look at the way sports figures, like celebrities from other media, provide the data for what we might call a contemporary morality play, or something to that effect, with particular emphasis on the steroid scandal, Barry Bonds, and more currently, Ryan Braun. Later in the show, we discuss which mascots are the most dangerous and, if locked in a cage, what might win between a battle of a cardinal and a brewer. In addition to reading every word he's ever written, I might also suggest you follow Mr. Greenman at his Twitter account. His handle is at Ben Greenman. That's at B-E-N-G-R-E-E-N-M-A-N. Ben Greenman's is also the voice you'll hear opposite mine on this edition of Fangraph's Audio.
1: Yeah, it's like calling the White House or something. Uh, It's uh, Yeah, it seems good. We had our holiday party yesterday, last night. The magazine did, so today people are a little bit subdued, maybe. But uh, other than that, it's it's everything that you would expect.
0: Dramatic speeches?
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Like in the hall, often people will stop halfway down the hall and turn and just declaim the whole piece. (laughs) Um, Just as a way of trying it out. But it's – uh, yeah, I wouldn't say – sometimes dramatic speeches, sometimes just speeches.
0: Now, the the way uh, with which I first became familiar um, with your work was through Superbad, which is a book that is – was put out by McSweeney's, I believe. It was? Yeah, and that book is excellent. That book uh, – I was a younger man than I am now, probably about, about 10 years younger. And that book, in the way that uh, – Good books do uh um, it it uh in it, it was able to show me that there are certain things that you could do with prose um that i you know that I hadn't seen anywhere else
1: well it's uh, you're you're one of a group of i was a younger man then too, but you're one of a group of uh a demographic let's say that um all around the same age I wouldn't even say mostly men although I would have thought so at the time, but I would say it's probably sixty forty Man, at the time I would have thought maybe ninety nine one. But uh the the Jews still come up in that book because it hit people because of what McSweeney's was at that point and because of the the age of the readers. It hit people at a certain point right at that time in their life. And it is really it's rewarding and it's sometimes kind of surprising to see how that book has stuck and you know, the other books sometimes were uh targeted more at normal adults or you know, they they People handle them differently did that book really has uh i don't know i guess cult cult uh survival for people in, in their brains is that accurate Does' it seem like it kind of still there somewhere
0: well it's just it it there's a, i believe there's a certain kind of uh ecstatic insouciance about it, it i i am quoting that phrase it, I don't think it's gonna stick but <laughs> <laughs> but you
1: do it have might, if I need a blur for a reprint i'm going to get that yeah do it do it. <laughs> it, do it. We we can tell, and maybe we should tell people what the book was a little bit. So when I, it was the, I published a lot of, you know, traditional short fiction and then a lot of um, more experimental and comic work in different places. And some of the more experimental comic work was on the twenties because that's what they did at that time. And when I went shopping around for the first book, normal book that I was going to publish to make my debut as an author, most publishing houses wanted to do one or the other. Like they said... All right. Well, we'll you know we'll make you into comedy writer guy, or we'll make you into serious short fiction guy. And I said, because I was younger and didn't maybe I didn't know any better, or maybe it's better to say it was part of some master plan. I said, why can't they both be in the same book? And many places found that preposterous. Many publishers just think, you know, how can you have a 500 word humor piece next to a, I don't know what the longest piece is in there, but let's say. yeah, uh, 8,000 word serious short story.
0: Right.
1: And McFinney's was happy to do that, and I think that that, you know, it's what I wanted to do with that, and so that, it is, it's strange in that way. I don't know, I haven't done that since really in, in a book, and I don't know many that do, that sort of smush those two things together. Um and yet at the same time try to make them make sense with each other, so, uh, yeah, it was, it's definitely odd. At yeah. that. And, and it, you know,
0: well, it's uh, it's I mean that that looks like a memorable piece. And actually, I used to um, well, I used to teach uh, composition uh, both uh, at UMass and then um, a community college in Portland, Oregon. And and one piece that I would always um show my students was I think it's uh, my hopes and dreams. Um, oh
1: yeah, yeah, that's a good one.
0: It's fun in in for a composition class. It, it's particularly resonant. I should say that essentially it's. It's an entirely self aware piece, right? It's like, uh, first line. I think the thing, first thing you write is, uh, first line of a book I will someday write. So it's something that is. Yeah, it's,
1: right. It's a piece about composing. What's, what's funny about that is that, I don't know how, you know, these things change pretty quickly, but a lot of things that exist now, like, uh, I mean, Twitter's one, um, maybe an obvious one, but the kind of turning in on themselves jokes that make for good quick hits that before maybe existed in certain kinds of, I don't know, certain kinds of fiction, certain kinds of stand-up comedy, whatever else, and now are all over because of things like Twitter weren't really in the, the literary space without McSweeney's. And so. And that book has a lot of them. That has the uh, the first piece, I think, which is Notes on Revising, uh, sorry, Notes on Revising, Last Night's Dream, where there's like five little uh Bullet points for how the dream could be better, and you know, I didn't really know there were there were odd shaped thoughts that I did, I didn't really think of as pieces, and I don't know that much about you probably know more about the world of like flash fiction or certain kinds of comic poetry or things like that that aren't really it's hard to get them literary uh, um, standing because they 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 do different things than what people traditionally expect. They're they're more like Borges or more like Andy Kaufman or whatever than literature traditionally does. They're not they're not particularly emotional maybe in the traditional way. So yeah, I mean that was a great it was a great time for all that kind of writing and to get it all collected in one place was, was good and now it's a book and it exists and you have it. You yeah, have it.
0: Uh, yeah. It, well, it's a question of packaging too at some level, right? Like if you're trying to sell something, if you're a publisher, you need to describe it in x number of words so that people understand what it is.
1: Your sales force. Yeah, I mean, as I've gotten to be an older author, totally. That that's there's less freedom. I mean, I, I could probably do another book like that, but it would have a cost in terms of like right momentum and and uh, read description. Let's say that it didn't at that time. Right, and you have it's, taxes it's, to
0: pay. Children. <laughs> <laughs> right. Children. It, it, it's, it's, <laughs> um,
1: it's the, it's the kind of freedom, and, and, you know, different authors use it different ways, but it's that freedom of the first book where sometimes for that, for an author, it's the, you know, very prominent first novel, but if it, if it does everything it's supposed to, it defines you in a certain way, and you have to do other works that, if they're not like that, you have to explain why they're not like that. And so for, you know, that, since that was the first book, there's a lot of freedom built into that book to sort of do whatever I wanted. It's, it's not. Uh, it's on a gift certificate still. I don't know if there's any good way to use it over and over again. You, it's uh, nice to know that you can do it.
0: Yeah. No. You. I believe at that time you were already at the New Yorker. Is that the case?
1: Yeah. I just got here. I got here in two thousand. And I think is that two thousand one. I hadn't been here for that long, but yeah, i was here already.
0: And how did that happen? Uh, so you know, pre bad? How did how did you find your way to the New Yorker?
1: I uh, let's see how far I should back up. I started. After college, I was a newspaper reporter and a film critic in Miami for a weekly paper, and I did that for a couple of years, and then I thought that I – I don't I know that I missed academics, but I, I thought I did. I was wrong. I went back to get a PhD that I didn't finish in literature, and then I uh, burned out of that in three years and came to New York City as a, as a freelance journalist. I was writing a lot of fiction, trying to get it published, having some success getting it published, but didn't, you know, I had no idea what kind of career it was or could be or how it might crystallize. And so I started doing a lot of freelance work and got to the New Yorker through that. I had written a number of, um, talking the town pieces for them. And a, and a editorship came open and they, a guy who I knew through writing the pieces said, you should go in and apply for that. And it was the sort of traditional, you know, I went in, they asked about it. It was a uh, an editor job rather than a writing job, which just turned out, I think, to be great in a lot of ways. But it, um, it was straightforward, you know, very normal. Now, I remember the first. Yeah. Oh, go ahead.
0: No, well, I was just going to say, uh, sort of, uh, apart from that, that um, you know, I have to have a, a pretense of some sort to to invite Oh yeah. To invite okay, you so on to the, the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the pretense on which I've based uh, the, this invitation is that you tweet now. You tweet quite a bit about sports.
1: I do, and I and I, well, I, I've always been a fan of the, all. I would say equally all three major sports that we have here in the, you know, in our world. I'm not an expert in anyone. Uh, some years I would say basketball is more interesting. Sometimes baseball. Sometimes football. In the last few years, football's moved up in the rankings a little because I have two sons who are ten and seven, and football's the only one that they can play in the house. It's hard to do the. I mean, you know, looking full view of me in the living room and drive me nuts, and it's noisy. But it's hard to do baseball because things will break, and it's hard to do basketball because I'm not going to hang a hoop in the living room. So, but yes, and I and I. I would say I'm always amazed by expertise. Like, you know, Fangraphs is one example of that. People who really know what they're talking about and analyze stuff, because that's not how I approach it. I'm, um, I'm, uh, an engaged casual fan. I watch a lot. I talk about it, make jokes about it, but I don't know that I totally understand. I mean, I know the rules of all the major games, but I don't, I'm amazed when I hear people who actually really understand it. You know, yeah. who-, who analyze it.
0: Now, I I don't think I think it would be fair to say that, well, more broadly, your approach to literature and then and then your approach to, to your commentary on sport. Is not necessarily what one might traditionally think of as the, as the sort of New Yorker slash Roger Angel approach to it, which is sort of, you know, viewing especially baseball, right, which is kind of, uh, you know, the virtues of which for Angel are, you know, the the slow pace. And the you know the 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 richness of the the pitcher batter confrontation, and essentially expanding from from moments like you know expanding those into paragraphs and chapters etc. Uh, your approach is is a little bit different. Um, you want to sort of say like uh, comment briefly on kind of how it is that you interact with the game.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd say for me it's a, I mean it's a respite from the normal writing. So so whereas in the normal fiction at this point as the fiction's evolve, like I did a uh book of short stories with Harper Collins last year, what he's poised to do. And those are those slowly unfolding moments, but they're not, I mean, they're not about baseball, but about, you know, relationships and normal life and conflicts. So given that that's what I'm doing in that work, when I go on Twitter and I'm making jokes about sports or politics, the two main things that I'll make the jokes about, it's a totally different experience for me. It's, it's very reactive and very sort of in the moment that it's related to, I do these, um, Musicals that are done for years for McSweeney's and for the New Yorker, these fake celebrity-based musicals, and uh, I guess there's some, uh, maybe at some level, there's some sort of moral agenda, like finding fools and, and making them suffer. In sports or in politics, it's maybe at some level if there is a guiding principle. But I, years ago, there's this Illusion Fields quarterly. I don't know if they still publish. It's a literary magazine that does only baseball themed stories. And, uh, they, years ago, I had a very serious, straightforward story in, about baseball in that journal. Uh, probably, oh, it might be a decade now that that was in there. And it's very, normal. But I don't... Yeah, I mean, generally, that's not how I'm going use sports or politics, because the, the fiction work has become more about uh fiction stuff, people and relationships. So it's basically just to take shots. I mean, we, we're lucky because we live in a time when Adam Dunn is a punchline to almost any joke. So in that regard, you could do what you want. And, you know, people are... There's lots of targets in an average year.
0: Yeah, and I want to, and I, I want to get to those musicals in a second. But it might actually help uh, just before we enter into the, the some of the the work you you have done that that might intersect with um, interested that um, readers and listeners, uh, fan graphs, might have. Is uh, could we get could we get a brief uh, sporting biography from you? I guess I, I where like where are you from and, and what were your your baseball? Teams a, fan, like, a fan biography. A fan biography. Uh, okay. Sure.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I grew up in Miami. Um, when we did not really have any baseball, it was all the Dolphins at that point. We had no basketball and no baseball. I now live in New York, but my family going back for generations is from Chicago, and that's well, the reason, or maybe one of the reasons, that my baseball tastes, at least, are pretty straightforwardly Midwestern. It's, 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 it's White Sox, Brewers, Cardinals, you know, as a, as a fan. Um, so in that sense, this was a good year and a, and a bad year. You know, great for the Cardinals, bad for the, White Sox, mixed for the Brewers. Good, good up until recently, let's say. Um, yeah. And it's been, you know I, growing up in Miami. I mean, I I, I followed it all the time. I, I the year, the year that I followed the most, you know, that I was the most closely tracking everything, reading every box score was probably 1985, which was a, a good year for it. That was the uh, the I seventy World Series, the Royals cards and way Boggs hit close to 370 that year and Gooden won the triple crown and that was the year i think that i think that rose passed Cobb finally to, to go ahead at 4192 so that you know that was the height of my every single day read every single box score and go talk to friends about it um that was during high school and then you know over the years some of that falls off and then there's different ways to do it now it's through podcasts more than box scores but uh you know, following every season as closely as I can, living through the, the the great unpleasantness of the Susan McGuire years.
0: Right, and and that's something that that has sort of actually entered your work tangibly. Is like as you, you mentioned the musicals. You actually have a trilogy. Uh, I think the the steroids trilogy.
1: Yeah, it, two of them were on McSweeney's, and one was on uh, Gawker, another sort of uh, media and, and comedy website, and they. I didn't – you know, I'm not a purist about it. I mean, when you – if you go back and you read, obviously, any kind of history, it's very hard to be a purist about baseball because if you go back a 100 years and there's an era when – like a 100 years ago, we're coming up on a season that's going to be a big season. It was the centennial of the opening of Fenway and the the first time the Yankees wore pinstripes. I don't even think they were the Yankees yet. They were the – whatever they were before, the Highlanders. And this weird eight-game World Series where one of the games was a tie – you know, and, and you had um consistently hitting, batters hitting over 400 and pitches winning 30 games and home run champions hitting 10 homers. So it's hard to be a purist when the game has gone through so many. You know, it's changed again and again and again. Even with that said, I didn't like the steroid era, not because I don't think people should become supermen, but because of the cover-up and the lying and baseball's... Stupidity and complicity, and you know, it just it, it exposed a lot of what else bothered me: the big, the huge money and corruption, and um terrible management, and you know, all-star game tie. It just, you know, all all of the things that seemed personally and terrible about the sport. But you also so seem rather-
0: to, you also seem to be particularly sensitive to the sort of media hysteria that that comes up around these things too. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's what I
1: it's it's where I work, and so I see the good and the bad. I see really great reporting, right? I mean, I whether it's the newspaper reporters who spend years and and risk their freedom to to get these stories done, um, or the terrible hyping media, which is you you know, I mean, both are true. I don't think the internet's created more of just one. I think it's created more of both. It may the hyping media maybe travels more quickly, but it's uh. Yeah, I mean, all of the, the hand-wringing for things that everybody knows, and the, the worst part of actually sports media now, which is the incredibly irresponsible swings in, this happens the most in football because there's only, you know, 16 games, but the incredibly irresponsible swings in who's up and who's down in terms of teams. Oh, the Eagles are done. Oh, the Eagles are resurgent. You know, that I can't stand that. Just let the games play out. And so... In the steroid case, there was just a lot of really great coverage and really terrible coverage. And so these musicals, which there are fake current events musicals, I don't know anything about actual musicals. I understand that there are <laughs> plays that take place in front of people where some of the action is communicated via singing, but I don't, I'm not sure of that. And so I, but I make fake ones that are basically just these rhymes uh plays that rhyme, and they imagine what would happen if these events, whether it 's o j uh number one o j killed people um, <laughs> that or um another omel Gibson when he got pulled over and he was drunk and he he called the the police woman sugar tits that that am I, am I allowed to say that I'm well, yeah, you
0: keep, could say, yeah, keep saying it definitely
1: sugar bleep um. <laughs> And so celebrities in the sports is, of course, increasingly part of that celebrity culture. I mean, I guess it always has been, but now more than ever, because of uh wonderfully damaged human beings like A-Rod. Uh, you know, it just becomes this sort of circus. And so the steroid trilogy was, it was a particularly good circus. I have one on uh the original hearings. You know, the, I'm not here to talk about the past. I don't slash, I don't speak English hearings. Um, the... One on anatomy, and and then one on bonds more generally, because those all seem like great, you know, just fantastic displays of human greed, and dishonesty, and backstabbing, you know, selective prosecution, all these things.
0: Well, it's interesting because uh, the most recent, I think, book-length collection you've produced is the, um, is the checkoff stories, celebrity. Yeah, Chekhov. that's
1: last. That's last October. Yeah.
0: Right, and and for me, there's. There's no shortage of parallels between the, your work in the musicals and the celebrity Chekhov uh, because essentially, uh, I mean, I guess if we could say if Chekhov had one skill, he had a, a number of skills, but if we say the thing that sort of distinguishes itself in his stories, he's just really adept at distilling the human experience into relatively brief stories.
1: And, yeah, he was, yeah, he was 5 tool he, he, <laughs> right? Probably, would you say? They say that's still five tool, they're still five tool players, right? They still yeah, five, yeah said, five tools,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I haven't said something that's a fifteen year old joke, right? Um <laughs> it's uh yeah, I mean those exactly and I, and there's some sports in there, a little bit, not not as much. It's more um it's more actors and you know, celebants, people that don't have any visible scale but his I took the original Chekhov stories just to give a little background for that book it was a joke originally I had done one there's a story called the darling about a woman who marries uh, various men and each time she becomes a different person she she remakes her whole life and her whole character based on these husbands so I thought I didn't really just seem like Nicole came to me like that type of I don't know her I've never met the woman but it's from what I See in newspapers and things, so I started writing a series of these, and I did it as a joke. But Harper Collins, the publisher, loved the idea for a book. And the Chekhov stories originally are very satirical. They're about you know the the local, uh, the, the local government official who who t- takes on power in a way that's comically, uh, you know, that, that just is not very self-aware. So it seemed perfect for these things, and and I think I probably could do a whole set just of sports. I won't, but I all these characters are in sports too. I mean, look, it's just you know.
0: Well, the thing they have in common, right, is that it's these sort of, I, I mean, uh, and I'll borrow from uh, Roland Barthes, uh, I guess, f- famous essay on wrestling, which is that like there are these you know they have these. Uh, these really conspicuous in few details, right? That kind of, uh, scream like, you know, the, in some way are distillations of, of the human comedy or tragedy, however you see it. But it happens, I mean, it happens with sports in the same with, with, you know, big name athletes in the same way that it does. Um, especially athletes who are probably gaining notoriety for reasons other than their play on the field, uh, in the same way that it does with celebrities, you know? So like, um, You know, you have a story about uh, uh, Nicole Richie and Paris Hilton, and then, you know, a couple stories later, you have one about Tiger Woods, who, um, you know, whose, I guess, off the course, uh, you know, exploits are pretty well known. But that's the same thing that's going on with Bonds, too, right? It's just these very high profile um, stories that actually seem to just be new details to, to a story that it's been around for much longer.
1: Yeah, and they get flattened out. I mean, these people get denied inner lives for the most part. I mean, I guess you, if there's some really good journalism on somebody, like I don't know, Dykstra, that you start to see everything that's inside and that people suspected or or sensed spills out, and you see the the complicated layers of the people. But for the most part, it's in their interest to seem kind of flat. Right. I mean, this is the, the cliche about sports cliches. They just get up there and deliver a couple of bland comments. And and the thing is it's not always that. Sometimes there's other models of that. There's the, the funny guy, you know, the, the clown, the Brian Wilson who and, and it's not they're every single one of them, because they're human, has to obviously be much more complicated. We just never see it. It's not in their interest to show it. It's not in the team's interest to, to have it come out. And and the giant business surrounding the team. So they get like celebrities, they get you know, package their products, their, 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 their brands. And so it's, you'd it probably, you know, at the time because of that way that product evolved, I was thinking more on the entertainment side, but certainly because there's just so much money, it, it, it confuses me like, uh, not just, you know, running Wells money, but like Josh Willingham just signed yesterday or today with the twins. And he, that's a guy, you know, it, it, I don't know, like a two, 55 hitters last year he hit 29 home runs and gets 21 million over three years it it just seems right there's these weird distorting um factors about celebrities and athletes it's like a magnet and you move it toward the, the you know like a monitor and then the picture goes crazy it's, there's no real way to, to to digest it and in the same way when you think about you know as the full contract is coming together that's not a number i really understand Right? I mean it's like a, it's like as much money as goes to a nation. <laughs>
0: uh yeah, well no that yeah, that is true with pools. Uh you know, you you find a situation where he could give away um two hundred fifty thirds of his contract and still do still be doing fine.
1: Yeah, uh, he'd be fine. Uh, yeah. Right. He and he'd be rich. Not just fine. He'd open yeah. a restaurant probably still. Yeah. Another restaurant.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, well, oh, actually, a, a sort of thing that you've that you've been doing um, recently, a, a project you've been doing, I think, over the past year, that um, would resonate, and and uh, maybe anger. Uh, we'll have to see uh, some <laughs> some of our listeners. Is let's a, hope it, for anger. Yeah, let's do it. Well, anger sells, right? So hope, hopefully, anger is uh, a project you've been doing with graphs, though. Uh, these sort of self-aware graphs, and I'll, I'll give an example, and and then. You're going to fill in all the blanks, but one um like one is a, is a graph you have it's a bar graph, three bars of increasingly uh you know increasing height and and the the bar the the graph though is just a measurement of how long it took you in to color in the bars
1: yeah exactly um, and, yeah. The, and another one is like um it's called uh well there's one called uh how much I had to manipulate the data to make it seem like things were looking up. And and the, so the, the graph looks like a kind of optimistic line graph that goes up, but it's a graph about lying, you, you know, how much you have to, to cheat it. Or another one is uh chance your life will end in an anticlimax. and it's, <laughs> It goes from 10 to 80. And as you get around 60, it goes way up. And so it's, it's a, uh, this grew out of, I, I'm working on a, a novel for, for Harper Collins and there's a minor character in there. Not that minor. He's a friend of the main character. He's a short artist. He makes, it's his, he's a gallery artist, a museum artist, but the thing he makes is charts, these kinds of charts. And I thought I should probably make some, so that I had some sense of what this guy is. And then, I, because it's my stupid personality, I got obsessive about it. This, by the way, I should say regarding baseball is why I don't do uh, fantasy and why I don't gamble, because I would become as insanely obsessive about that as anything, and it would ruin, it would totally derail my. <laughs> My life, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would probably like I I I lose the house. It just it would all go. Don't wrong. do that. But Don't I, do it. I won't. I yeah. can't. I I well I I played rotisserie you know earlier history in eighty four eighty five in high school and you know that's even that I wasn't I didn't know as much as some people like who were in the leagues and that made me mad and then I would over prepare. It just wasn't it wasn't good for anybody. But so these graphs, I started doing them as a joke earlier this year. And they took on the floods of their own and they got, there's hundreds of them now. And, and they, again, I, I, maybe this will anger, kind of address people, but, but I, it's a real distinction because real data I like. I've always been interested in, I was like a math kid early on and I like that kind of stuff. But I also know how manipulative some of it is and how fake it is. You know, you, whatever. And like every anything, uh, infographics about the economy or, or, stupid, uh, graphs in magazines that don't say what they're supposed to say so i I defer that I think real real statistical analysis is great and probably advances the case a lot, and then some of it has to just be nonsense, but I assume you and people like you figure out what's what. I just stand over on the side and make fun of the process
0: right yeah there. well no that's and that's the thing and i and I think actually um probably a lot of people who who read Fangraphs have similar concerns uh, to the ones you do, which is it's it's hard to know when. All the time when you're being manipulated, and and it, it's especially true in sport because, um, you know, if, if you read the majority of of uh, columnists, sporting columnists, it's there's no there's not even the pretense of of presenting a case or evidence, right? And so I think right, right it's just
1: opinion, right?
0: Right, it's just opinion, but it's but it turns out a lot of the things that. Um, a lot of the you know any of the arguments you can make, you can support them with with data. And I guess if if fan graphs is trying to do something, it's trying to, and I, and I guess like you know, our, we become legitimate uh, if every time you know we we do this well in an article, is to to make a case and to using as much empirical evidence as we can, and then and being but also being very clear about what we don't know too. And I think that there you know, in a lot of cases especially in mainstream media, there's not really much to be gained from either from, uh, you know, sort of uh, careful deliberation. And I think like um, Neil Postman talks about this and in, in how to watch the the TV news or you know, whatever it's called. But, um, you know, in in being careful, that doesn't really sell, you know, in likewise saying that you don't know the answer to something. Is also not particularly attractive. And I
1: guess- That would be useful though, for-, for and maybe this is a, a metric at some level for players. Obviously it is for sample size, but to somehow quantify how much is unknown about players. Like if- if somebody's, you know, whatever, someone's coming back from an injury, or maybe there are more abstract ways of not- not knowing something, that you could qua- try to quantify that. So like there's a little, it's like the margin of error, if a player's been you know consistent over 15 years you feel like you kind of know a lot about that or, or the rate of decline things like that i'm sure there are people i don't know them but i'm sure there are people who do work on this at some level of factoring in unknown as well to try to make it known but, but then you know that's pretty speculative like i i the other team that i had a lot of interest in was the early 90s white Sox, mainly because of frank thomas and i i didn't at that time you know there was always statistical analysis and some degree of sabermetrics, but it wasn't as sophisticated as now. But I watched as a fan and thought that was the best hitter that I ever saw. And so now, 15 years later, 20 years later, when people do analyses, I favor the ones that support my prejudice. Like if I find one that says, oh, actually, Frank Thomas in 94, uh, that's the best season anyone ever had, correcting for integration. You know, like the four people that are ahead of him were pre- Integration of, of baseball, so that actually that one season is the best season ever. I believe it more because it's what it's you want it to be, Right.
0: Yeah. That's good. Uh, yeah. And uh, ultimately, you know, probably the consequences of you approaching the game like that are minimal. Um, you mean of
1: approaching it as a normal fan?
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, you're not hurting anyone, but I think right. No, I'm not a
1: GM. Yeah. it's Well, do you feel like it's changed the way you watch? significantly or or either improving it or detracting from it or or is it just not you can't even recover what it was like before that
0: um i think it it helps me I, I don't know you watch i watch a little bit more sanely i also um and you need to know this about me ben greenman forever and ever uh so i was i i grew up in in uh, new england and i was a very um, dedicated red sox fan uh through the time when they won the world series but it was impossible to return after that uh not not like a conscious decision but just just because um for they, you right the chances the chances that like in 2005 the season was going to be as good as 04 were they were impossible and it still hasn't you know become it still hasn't reached a point where if they won the world series in 2012 it wouldn't be as as entertaining and so uh I, actually now i live in uh, madison wisconsin and so um the brewers are an easier team to like because um Wisconsinites are some of the kindest, gentlest people in this country, and they love being from Wisconsin. So it's just like more of like participating in a cultural phenomenon, you know, more than watching that. So from that point of view, and also the fact that the Brewers were good, it's easy to cheer for the Brewers, I guess.
1: But um, did you, you jumped off Red Sox because you, could, you didn't like success or you thought there could be no better success?
0: There's just a crisis. Well, yeah, I mean, it was just a, an identity crisis. Uh, again, it wasn't conscious. I just didn't feel the same. You know, uh, cheering for the Red Sox in 2005 or 2011, it's just the same feeling of, um, I don't know, it's just whatever I was going to invest in, like the payoff was never going to be as great, I guess.
1: It's, it's interesting because my whole family's from Chicago and they, so I, I, as a, as an adult went back to grad school in Chicago in the early 90s and picked the White Sox over the Cubs because I like, at that time I liked the team better. And my family in back generations is split between Cubs and White Sox depending on if they were suburbs on the north or in the city on the south. But I agree that if the, if, if Theo does manage, let's say in the next three years to get a series for them, it's not the same at all. It's not the same team. It's not the same experience. It's not the same culture, and it would be great in some ways. But in in a way, I think kind of sad. And I don't know whether, it's, you know, you don't want to say that because you hope for the best. But it's not quite the same thing. Yeah. Because then, as you say, you know, right. then you need a follow up with what happens the year after that. Do you keep your free agent? You know, it's it's a little different.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It is. Hey. Well, listen, uh, Ben Greenman, This has been this has been really excellent. And uh, I mean, just for me personally to be able to talk to you but i think i think it's uh created good audio as well
1: um i, I have a one question that maybe i don't know if this is the thing for a graph i i I'd like to on football games at least pretend that the real um mascots objects animals whatever you want to call them are competing and see what would happen then so in baseball this would be like a if a cardinal was actually released into a cage with a brewer. <laughs> the things, the actual things. And I don't know, I don't know, I haven't thought about this as much with baseball because f- football is more, uh, military, right? So you can imagine, and it's, it's less common. It's, you don't play a series, so it would just be a battle to the death, right? An eagle against a dolphin or whatever. Yeah. And, and so, and, and i played in bad, in, in bad moments in the games, so I think about those things a lot and they, it's, it's very, uh, I would say entertaining, but it's more than that. It's kind of it's sometimes a little scary, honestly. Like if you think of certain pairings, like a, you know, like a giant against a, a falcon.
0: Well, I, that, I assume that you're familiar with uh, with Chris Batchelder's novel, Bear versus Shark.
1: Yes, I know. I know that, and that's and it's not unrelated, but it's not it's not so it's not sporty, right? In that in that exact same way.
0: Right. Well, it is and, a spectacle, but yeah, it's right. It's not not exactly like that. Well, you would have, a little
1: harder. Because it's a series, right? Like, what do you do? Like, you you, you can't they can't kill each other because there's a game tomorrow night,
0: <laughs> right? So, I mean, what what of all the mascots in, in baseball? What do you think?
1: Well, I, thought, I was thinking about this a little before, and I don't know. What do you like? What occurs to you is the best? Some of them are kind of.
0: I don't think a sock. I don't think a sock's going to do much.
1: Exactly. But that's kind of, I mean, you don't know. You you could always. I mean, it it could somehow mess things up. So you could smother. An animal with yeah. a sock and stuff. But yeah, I mean, I guess that would be my challenge is to find the best, to ask people to find the best matchup. So I don't for, know.
0: for the most competitive match or for, or for the most, um, the entertaining? Yeah.
1: Sort of most destructive. Yeah, the, the <laughs> most destructive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The most, just historically. And then maybe there are even dead teams that, that are, you know, like crazy teams that I don't know about. Mascots from the, to nineteen teens and twenties that, that are even better.
0: Well the Cold Forty Fives um, would have would have been.
1: Uh, oh, that's a good one. They can, you can get almost anyone with that, right? There's no like grenades or anything like that.
0: Not that I know of, no. No, no, no. Uh and then uh oh yeah let's see. So a giant would be pretty good,
1: right? A giant's pretty good, yeah.
0: They're big. Not bad. Giants are giants are big.
1: A dodger's not that good really, when it comes down to it, right?
0: Right. And in fact I believe they're trolley dodgers, so
1: yeah, yeah, it extends the action, but you don't – I mean, they, they're they getting away from the fight, but I don't know what they're – The skill, it's not is. like a
0: really super useful skill.
1: <laughs> you it's, know, not, touch, it's limited. I, it's right.
0: touching a trolley, right. Especially in Los Angeles. I don't know that they even have – I guess they have some manner of, uh, of of rapid transit, but it's not.
1: But that's they, one of those – yeah, that's one of those Lakers um, jazz type things, right, where it, does, it doesn't really make sense. Right. In, it, in the current city. But, yeah, the, of all time, the most – the thing is also football, again, since it's more army-like, has, I think – I could be wrong and maybe people would be mad, but I think scarier mascots in general, right? Baseball, they, there's some dignity and there's a lot of birds that aren't that frightening, really. Um, you yeah, know. Yeah,
0: and, and I think it also uh, – my guess is it would have something to do – with uh, when the team names were conceived, you have a, you have more older baseball teams, and they tend to have wimpier and just like more descriptive. Mascots. Yeah, they're like
1: respectable, like they, um, you know, Cardinals and Orioles. The, the birds are very, they're great. They have huge traditions, and they're hugely important to their communities and cities and everything. But they're not scary. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, the Tigers are a little scary, I guess, right?
0: Yeah, right. Now the worst, the worst. Uh, besides MLS, if we're leaving MLS out of there, because LA Galaxy, single um, singular nouns have really yeah, That's no, the worst. Yeah, they really, the heat, have,
1: you know, in Miami when the Heat came in, yeah, it's terrible. It's it's like it's a fake enforced group identity, and it's usually abstract and stupid. Like you know, like a team is called like the Thought. you are like, well, that doesn't scare anybody. <laughs> the, the the um the Duende. Is there a
0: team called the Duende?
1: <laughs> the NL Central is pretty bad for, because you yeah, have, I mean, the Pirates are good, I mean, not good as a team, but not, but that good as a, as a swass, you know, frightening mascot, right? But otherwise, it's, it's Brewers, Cardinals, Reds, uh, Cubs, and then worst of all, the Astros. Right, right. Like, right. What, what even, are they, are they, are they got a guy with a, it's a, it's, it's a, not a guy with a, like a space gun, it's just a star.
0: It's just a star, I guess. Yeah, right. It's weird. The, another another terrible one, I think, is the Raptors, Toronto Raptors.
1: Oh yeah, but they, they, but in fairness, it's a scary thing. It just isn't credible.
0: Right. That well, because it was the product of like a uh, a Toronto Star, or Sun, or whatever papers there. They had like a contest.
1: And, you know, oh yeah, that was a contest.
0: Yeah, it's it's a case where crowdsourcing does not work.
1: And um, the. Most interesting, I think, in this whole thing would be – and I would, they'd never win, but I would like to see it as the Twins because that would just be that, – that's funny, right? Yeah. Like I would enjoy seeing like like uh, two Twins against like – see, some of these are like the Rockies. That's a new name and I don't really care what that is. Right, yeah. It's region.
0: It depends. Yeah. If the Twins were uh, – I mean, if one of them were willing to give up his life, then he could sort of serve as bait while the other one – attacked you know like the devil
1: ray comes after him and then the other guy or they're not the devil rays anymore, the ray comes after him and then the the other twin is like lurking with a an knife and gets the ray
0: right or alternatively and uh, they could if it was a pair of a pair of buxom lady twins <laughs> uh they could seduce uh it seduce, never, in most cases
1: they're never approaching it like the braves right like they one of them approaches the Braves. yeah the yeah braves. yeah
0: how you doing you're looking you're looking like a racist stereotype tonight you know yeah yeah right
1: I really sympathize with your plight
0: yeah
1: <laughs> it's um, yeah well it's I mean it, I, I it's hard to imagine A that, that however many minutes we spent we spent on this but to B um, other people haven't thought of it it must occasionally occur to people just when they see the you know the game description and it says you know whatever Marlins against phillies but phillies just to see so it's, it's kind of screwed up you're right it's you know it is it's how old some of the names are yeah and that they're so built in the community that they they weren't mar- they weren't thought of as marketing right away so they're not things
0: right yeah they right they weren't silly. actually there was a, uh, an episode i remember of cheers in which Shelley long somehow became like an expert uh, i'm i'm definitely distorting this but she became like a a she was giving betting tips, and they were always right. And then someone asked her her secret, and she said she would just guess the mascot that would beat the other mascot.
1: Oh, uh, that's interesting. So, yeah. well, well, hopefully I didn't get this from Shelley Long. That would be sad.
0: <laughs> like anyway, way
1: back, if I trace it back, I don't think so.
0: Yeah. And well, if so, I,
1: it was the last thing I got from her. What was it? If, if so, that was the last thing that I got from from her.
0: Right, but there was Nothing so much left. else before that.
1: Before, but that's a whole separate uh, podcast, yeah. right?
0: Yeah. Well, it really would be the writers of Cheers, and there, those, aren't, those are those definitely not the worst writers around. That was a that was no. a strong American sitcom for years.
1: Of course, for yeah. years it was a mainstay. It was a the mainstay of whatever night it was the mainstay. Of.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah. I think it might have switched around. I, I don't know. Yeah. Um,
1: so, uh, yeah, and then the Red Sox centric. Uh,
0: Indeed. In fact, uh, I'll tell you something that I don't know if I've ever told anyone else besides my wife. Is my aunt uh, is actually, you know, the opening credits there, where it shows people walking in front of uh, in front of the Cheers building. My aunt is one of those ladies.
1: She's in the so she, but no residuals or anything.
0: I don't. No, I don't think. I don't think she. Uh, I mean, she's quite wealthy, but I'm. I'm sure it's for other reasons.
1: So she's literally been on TV more than like anybody. That you know because she's on every single time we show cheers anywhere in the world she's on right. just for like a second
0: yeah that's true yeah 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 yeah. more times yeah
1: yeah like regis she's like regis
0: she's just like um, regis in a lot of different ways that we don't
1: need to go into. so excellent well yeah i i will so that's the last thing is just the the i'm trying to think of the scariest matchups and i, I think baseball kind of looks me down in that regard
0: yeah it's not yeah. helping you out he's not helping you out yeah. switch to mls though at least it'll be absurd
1: yeah, and, like, hockey's pro, Hockey's pretty good, too, because it's more, you know, more violent. Right. Um, so, yeah, so I don't know. It's not a big baseball. I mean, what what news is there? There's just a couple signings today. I didn't check, but just a couple minor.
0: Oh, you're killing me. You, you know, I should...
1: Uh, you don't have to know. You just, could just pretend it's a different day. You could pretend this is the Pujols Day. Like oh, a,
0: yeah, Oh, the big news out of St. Louis today, <laughs> Ben Greenman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, then... uh uh, then I'd have to explain why it took me two weeks to put it up yeah. <laughs> the podcast.
1: You just—that's easy after the fact. You just go back to the beginning and you record a little thing saying, yeah. I was traveling, seeing every park or whatever, so I wasn't able to get this out.
0: Right, every every park, right in the middle of winter, like everyone does. <laughs> you know, there's actually uh, tomorrow's podcast is one. Uh, it's a player that might appeal to you. Uh, his name is Fernando Perez. Um, he he was he played uh, briefly for the Rays and his um was uh spent part of last year in both the Mets and Cubs minor league system he's the first baseball player uh to be published in poetry magazine uh during his i oh,
1: yeah. do career. You, i remember that he um he i remember reading something that he was saying about asbury right he's like uh yeah and did, did he write are they baseball themed or not i don't some oh no,
0: i don't yeah i don't know actually uh but i, I know that he studied yeah he studied creative writing at uh he studied creative writing at uh, at Columbia when he was there. So huh. that's something that not every baseball player does. Sharp guy though.
1: It's uh. So that's done. You recorded that one already? Yeah, I
0: re- yeah. I recorded that yesterday. But it didn't matter uh, what I put up because he's in China and won't know anyway.
1: <laughs> <laughs> What's he doing in China?
0: Just uh things that uh, people do, I guess. When they go to China. He's got a friend who's making a a documentary there, and he's just hanging out with him.
1: Oh, uh, so he's not, it's not like he's playing. It's not like the balling. And- China. So.
0: Right, yeah, he just wanted to go to China and knows a dude there from college. Um, excellent. So he can just do that yeah, well,
1: it, well, the whole, yeah, I mean, the baseball poetry thing is, there's a lot of it. I mean, that, that's a whole separate series, right? That's a whole
0: separate series. That's tomorrow's podcast when we have Ben Greenman on again to discuss poetry and baseball.
1: <laughs> well, I, I'd have to prep for that one. Uh, so, excellent. Alright, well, it's, uh, yeah, she was great.
0: Hey, yeah, well, this was a lot of fun, uh, and thank you for joining us, Ben Greenman. Uh, thank you. Alright, that's Ben Greenman. I'm Carson Sestouli, This is Fangraphs Audio.